You're listening to the Dungeons, Dragons, and Psychology Podcast. When this show started earlier this year, and I recorded my first few episodes, I had no idea that it was going to grow this much or get this far. And everything that I've learned over this last year, talking to people throughout the community and my friends, has been very inspiring. And the community that has grown around this show has become something that I'm very, very proud of. And so on today's episode, which is our season one finale, I've invited three of my friends back who you've heard on the show before, and we're going to discuss some of what's coming up and what they've liked about the last year. I'm Robert Walker, author of Session Zero, the DMG to writing great campaigns in any system, and this is my show where I teach collaborative storytellers how to create memorable campaigns using psychology. And stay tuned at the end of today's episode because I do have a very special guest announcement for a bonus episode next month. Even though we're going to be on break, I'm still going to continue bringing you some bonus episodes and extra content over the next couple of holiday months. So let's meet our guests. This is Nate Pohl. I'm the technical director for Boise State University Theater. I've been working in theater my whole adult life, and the telling of stories is sort of both trade and passion. I've been playing D&D for about 19 years, I think. Hi there. My name is Joseph Henry. I'm an economist by training, but a wizard at heart. I've been playing since I was 16, rather learning D&D since I was 16, and uh Joined this group some 11 years ago, I think. Well, my name is Dustin Archer. I have been uh, gaming for uh, just over 25 years with Rob. Today, I'm most proud that I am Joseph Henry's arch nemesis. Nate's my arch nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I don't know what I did to deserve that. You know what you did. How now many I betrayals are we at? <laughs> betrayals? <laughs> All I hear about the old stories are, oh, yes, first he was a traitor in the desert. Then there was this other time that he was also the traitor. Then there was the first game that I played in where you also betrayed us. Awesome, you guys. Welcome to the show. This is our season one finale episode. Holy crap. I am so excited to have three of my closest gaming buddies all here at the table with me today, and we are going to be discussing a little bit about what's going to be coming up in season two, reminiscing a little bit about season one, and talking about some of our favorite game moments and giving you some ideas for making your own games better. So we'll do this in a little bit of a roundtable style, just everybody chit-chatting, and hopefully my cyclothids out there get some good content out of this and, and have something to look forward to as we move into season two. So I'll tell you right off the bat, one of the biggest changes we're making as season two returns, which is going to be the first Sunday of the new year, we are implementing a new segment, which is going to be a host red segment called knowledge checks. And what knowledge checks are is they are going to be a review of the psychology literature and research that has been done on a topic related to our topic of conversation for the episode. So at the end of every episode, you're going to get to look at the psychology behind what it is we're talking about and really have a better understanding that you can take to your table with the use of psychology. But enough about that for now. Let's uh, let's start chit-chatting, guys. First thing I want to ask you about, we had a successful season. It, it's it been pretty amazing how many listeners we have. 
as of the recording of this episode, we are like two downloads shy of 4,500 downloads for nice. season one so far, which is pretty freaking awesome. But I want to ask you each, you've all been on the show before. Can you tell me or share with the listeners one of your favorite or a couple of your favorite moments from season one? Yeah, absolutely. And when I'm thinking back over all the episodes that we've done, there was definitely one episode that definitely uh, stood out. And uh, if memory serves, it was episode 17. It was uh, talking about monsters who are not stupid, except those (laughs) who have, you know, maybe a low intelligence. And that was really fun because we were able to get into talking about, you know, better ways to run monsters at the table as a GM and how to be necessarily clever rather than actually having to overstat or, you know, just have higher numbers for the the PCs to deal with. And there was a lot of fun dialogue and discussion there. And that's a subject that I think we could uh, dive into and even explore certain uh, typical monsters that maybe aren't played to their their level. So that was a lot of fun chatting about, and I think there's a lot of room to even uh, touch base back on that topic in the future. That's an excellent point. That was a fun episode because we did talk about a lot of the different ways that monsters we've typically played kind of uh, stupidly could be played more creatively. Like dragons. Like dragons is a, was probably the biggest example, yeah. I think my favorite episode was, and I just listened to this, so I'm probably biased, but the one with Nate and Chris talking about how to end stories, Mm. um, particularly around the idea of um, really like enjoying a good sacrifice, like a good martyrdom, um, but also how that really needs to not be the only way your stories conclude (laughs) (laughs) because it, I mean, it does turn into kind of a tired meme after a while. Um, you, but, do, uh, you do anything too much and it becomes a little passe. Right, exactly. So f- finding different ways to wrap things up and otherwise find closure, I think, is uh, a great idea. I think, man, I'm, I struggle with this one too, frankly, because for the most part, I'm proud of all the episodes that have been put out through season one. I do think one of the ones that I've I've had a lot of personal connection to and a lot of personal responses to is uh, the psychology of character death, which mm-hmm. was actually a bonus episode. But it just it seemed to touch people in in a more intimate way because it it gave them a space to sort of understand how impactful emotional moments in games have been to them. And I had a lot of people reach back out to me and say, hey, you know, when you talked about this, it really reminded me of these moments in games. Like I didn't really understand why I was so emotional or why I was so Mm. tied to these characters. And I think that was really cool to kind of see the response, psychologically speaking, to that sort of topic and that conversation. Okay. Actually, this is this is going kind of way back. It was one of the very early episodes. Um, but I think one of the ones that, that was maybe the most helpful for me in thinking about running games, planning games, uh, was one of the early episodes. I think uh, it was you and Dustin, um, Rob, who were talking about plot hooks and and sort of how to build them, how to craft them, how to think about them. And it clarified things. I mean, it, it was information that maybe a lot of it I sort of had, although some of it I think uh, was, was fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it clarified things in ways that I hadn't really thought about before. It, it, it sort of was a nice reframing of things that I already knew to, to really – help me think about them um, in, in terms of how you create the mechanism by which you get players involved in the story. There's definitely some gold in those earlier episodes. We touched on some of the big, obvious, important subjects that were a lot of fun, but I've gone back and listened to some of those early episodes a few times because there's a lot of really good stuff there. Yeah. And I think one of the things that uh, I'm really looking forward to with season two is delving a little bit further into the psychology 
behind the topics that we're talking about. So not just having that roundtable conversation like we have had, but also sort of bookending that idea with here's what you need to know about the psychology of that concept and why it has so much of a profound effect around the table. Uh, so I am I am definitely looking forward to that. But I'm curious, the three of you, what what sort of ideas do you have other psychology topics or other RPG topics do you guys want to be a part of in season two? Oh, I'll go first. Incentives. I love the idea of setting up reward systems within a game to incentivize certain play styles, especially finding a reason or helping nudge someone along to play more support roles mm. as opposed to trying to like mm. vie for the superstar kind of status at the table. Thus spake the economist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> this is my trade. <laughs> That's a good topic. I'd be interested in hearing and listening to that. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking a little bit about, we've, we've kind of touched around this. We've talked a lot about villains and how to tell good stories and how to establish, you know, plot hooks that lead your party into that. I would like to explore the notion of, of societies that have chosen an evil course and uh, put them at odds with the PCs. It's easy to be part of a good aligned society that's attacked by bandits or goblins or dragons you know, in the wilderness, and you've got to defend that good aligned society against these various forces. I think it'd be more interesting to talk about the opposite, playing a characters who are, th- who are trying to struggle to survive in a society that is fundamentally against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this can take a lot of different forms um, of the way that the evil society is portrayed I mean, then they could be the, the leaders of the society might have the rest of the society held hostage and they, you know, to the, their whims, or, or maybe they've even deluded the rest of the society to thinking uh, terrible ideas are actually the norm or expected or even needed to sustain the society and having to fight both psychologically against the nature of what is the belief and is this accurate? And then how to actually deal with the day-to-day challenges presented by that kind of a world. I think that's a subject I'd like to really get into. Mm-hmm really the key to an evil society is that they will take something that sounds noble or could be noble Mm -hmm. if it was implemented in a noble sort of way and use that to further their own ends. How how much even more more problematic would it be if most people in the society don't even know it's a really an evil society and what they're actually contributing to is is some horrendous, I mean, you know, genocide, slavery, racism, a lot of different things could be taking place behind the scenes that the average member of the society isn't aware of. I I would dare say I think your paladin might have an issue with his uh, detect evil picking up on systemic evil. Well, sure. And and that's part of why I wanted to dig into this subject, because it kind of depends on how you how you slate evil in a traditional way, because there's a lot of functionaries, I think, in the real world, in bureaucratic societies that are arguably from most Western perspectives anyway, evil societies that they themselves would not be evil. They're just a cog in the wheel. The leaders may be, the goals may be malign in intention, but that doesn't mean every bureaucratic functionary would register with an evil alignment. I mean, the the other interesting thing is actually how detect evil is, I think changed a little bit over the years. Um, I don't, I'd actually have to go back and look at the rules to see what they said originally, but I believe the origin of Detect Evil was identifying evil-aligned characters and items um, and monsters. But I believe that with Pathfinder, at least, they actually changed the rules on that so that it actually will identify as evil somebody who is currently in the middle of committing an evil act. That is or exactly considering what I was thinking of, an evil actually. act. Yeah. I, don't believe it was considering. That sounds very Catholic. 
Uh, <laughs> think, if, think, you're remembering that from I, high school. Well, maybe that's it too. No, I think, remember something about like the the example being someone. The paladin goes into the tavern, and there's someone at the bar who's kind of keeping to themselves, but they keep eyeing someone that they're planning on stabbing, and that shows up as evil because they're considering you know doing this terrible I, thing. I will say, I believe planning is different than considering. Okay, fair enough. You're t- semantics, <laughs> but we're on well, the same. I mean, <laughs> intrusive thoughts versus premeditation is okay. Fair, somewhat enough. different. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Yeah, that that does make sense to me. Yeah, premeditation is definitely evil. Well, they're not sure they're going to go through with it. Yeah. Okay, and just to like kind of seed the water for that future episode, I think it's also important to draw a line between uh, social preconceptions of evil and like literally elemental evil. Is uh, mm. I'm sure there's going to be some degrees there, like the primal evils. Yeah, is that what oh you're yeah, talking? like yeah. temple of elemental evil is very different than like Great the evil of the an unlawful traffic ticket. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, mere, traffic tickets are punishable by death. Mere extortion. <laughs> well, but the, but that's that's the that's the point. It's actively mm-hmm. evil intent. Like you, you are setting out to commit the action. You're not just thinking about the action. Uh, intention is thinking about. No, it's 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 the difference between somebody thinking about blowing up a building or somebody actively planning the steps that it would require. To and, blow up that same and building. And I would argue someone who's seriously considering creating the steps, if they were detected evil on at that moment, they would show up as evil. Listen, you are maybe on a continuum a little bit, and um, I get that maybe you could register a little bit of something at that point. But I think every random person who has ever thought about doing something bad would not necessarily detect as evil. Well, that depends on if they're Catholic or not. Well, and we we don't necessarily want to like kind of verge into thought crimes like that. Actually, that would minority be report. exactly yeah. what an evil society, surveillance society. Heck, they could use telepathic abilities to determine your intent. I mean, and that's obviously for the well being of the society because we want to purge the malign influences, right? Well, minority report. Yeah. There are a lot of spells out there that are about trying to prophesy the future. Yep, that's true. Mm-hmm. Oh mm-hmm. God. You're not even detecting thoughts at that point. You're just going to read the future. Oh, That's, I love it. I love it. seems this, somehow unsporting. That should be its own episode, a society <laughs> that detects the future. Hey, hey! It, it is a common, common trope in fantasy and science fiction even sometimes, mm-hmm. and I, I think could make some interesting stories. Precognition. Well, uh, uh, Rob, I, I have to go back to this. Don't we have like 50 to 70 show ideas for season two already? Oh, I do have a lot. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's what no, I thought. No, I mean, there's um, listeners, there's no shortage of episode ideas. And I keep getting ideas from my cyclothids as well. Like people have jumped on Instagram or on Twitter and they've said, hey, I would really love if you would talk about this topic. And there's been some really great ideas in awesome. there. So I do suggest if you're listening and you have a great idea, send it in. Jump on Instagram or send me an email. I love to hear these kind of ideas, and and several of the episodes of this season one were thrown in there because they were ideas that I got from listeners. And I think that is the best kind of way to create a podcast because then I'm giving you the exact kind of content that you're looking for, and, and I really like that part. We've all been playing in the same game over the last few months. I'm kind of curious. I want to know, over the last year, recent games that we've played in, what are some of the best moments that you guys have had this year? And I think we've talked a lot about older games that we've been in and things that go a little bit further back. We've mentioned some of our current campaigns, but I'm I'm really interested in hearing 
what you guys have found is like your most favorite parts of this year? So I'll go first. I think there's a, there was a moment where in my Tolis campaign, when the party finally got the staff put back together that they needed to d- destroy uh, an artifact. And, and and I don't want to give too many spoilers if anyone's involved in the Tolis campaign, but this staff was incredibly powerful. And there was some conflict between the party of, should we use it? I mean, my gosh, look at all the benefits it could provide for us versus, well, there's a major like plot thing we need to do with this that's important, but in the process, we'll destroy this wonderful, powerful artifact staff. And gosh, should, should we just, you know, hold on to it for a little while to, to nope. deal with threats before us? And, Play the objective. Yeah. Always. And it, it was really, really fun to see the cogs turning in the various players and, and, and the conversations there. And and I think that they made the the right decision in the sense of, nope, let's get right to the plot. Let's deal with the threat before us. And and I would have had some fun as a GM preventing that from taking place if the party had delayed too much. So it was probably the right call. But it was really, really fun to see, uh, see that debate and see, my gosh, this would be great to keep around as an artifact to use for the party, but but really, is it worth the risk? And and having the party have to make those kind of moral uh, decisions with all the... I mean, realistically, there were so many threats allayed before them that keeping a powerful artifact that would help them deal with those other threats would have been useful, but they had to decide what's the greater objective. And and just watching that debate take place among the party and trying to figure out what they needed to do and, and finally choosing the moral high ground, even though there was great personal cost involved with that in addition to losing the artifact... It's a lot of fun for me as a GM, probably the most memorable in the last year for sure. Uh, it's, it's the exact argument that a sealed door fell on the wrong side of. Yeah. It's what gave us the Lord of the Rings. That's right. Do I, do I take the power for the good of my people or mm-hmm. do I destroy the artifact? Yeah, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I really enjoyed being able to play out my pseudo paladin Vacraeus out to a reasonable level. I, I think that one of the things that really comes up when you're spending a little bit too much time working out character ideas is you start craving the novelty of something that's like strange. Uh, and this ended up being a paladin that's not a paladin, uh-huh. um, but uh, came together really well. I, I got a great deal of pleasure out of playing a character who was essentially a paladin and was lawful good, but had no like oaths or like motivating reasons why he had to stay good. And essentially playing that out uh, as a, a very effective, like, defensive mage knight of sorts. Mm. Um, and it was just really satisfying to get towards the end of that cam- campaign and and see it all come together in a way that actually supported the party and wasn't necessarily, like, uh, problematic as some of the higher-end builds can be. Numbers. You you enjoyed the numbers. You enjoyed the numbers. I enjoyed, <laughs> enjoyed the seeing it abilities that you had at your disposal. Completion. <laughs> I was shaking my head because there are no problematic characters. There's only problematic players. Spoken like a problematic player. <laughs> Spoken is one who can identify problematic players at a, at a distance. Now you're putting me on the spot because I think you're right. Every Every character has a game that that character is fit for. Some Literally every be, character. Some sure. of them might be by themselves. Listen, it's entirely yeah. possible. But I think more what tends to be the problem is how they are played, not the numbers on the page. 
whether they're played just to just to tag on to that, whether they're played in a collaborative way with the rest of the goals of the other PCs or whether they're kind of going off on their own, doing their own thing, exactly. ignoring the story the GM is telling, ignoring the desires and goals of the other PCs and just trying to achieve their own thing. And I think that comes down to how the character's built. I mean, realistically, I've always despised the notion of building characters in a void separate from each other and then all coming to the table. I mean, there's a place for that. The party meets in the tavern and stuff. And for some more casual games that may work, especially maybe with a newer group of players who's not used to playing with each other. But I think that we've talked about this in some of our session zero discussions, getting together as a larger group, figuring out what the nature of the game is, you know, the various different roles people are going to take. So, you know, Joe, you brought this up before people haven't stepped on each other's toes is minimize that as much as possible increases everyone's enjoyment of the game. So I think that, you know, if you go into that collaboratively, I think you're going to work well, but realistically speaking, there are players, I think that sure. uh, go about that, the opposite perspective, the antagonistic well, style. But isn't that a problem of the players, of not the character. Hold sure. on. Are you talking about us not stepping on toes in a game where we have two rogues and two druids? That's a seven player game, my friend. There's going to be toe steps. It happens. It's about picking yeah. a slightly narrower lane. Okay. All right. All right. That's true. I mean, we have had a game filled with only wizards. I remember a game where we <laughs> played, now admittedly, it was three player characters, but we played three red wizards of Thay. I mean, oh, not not, not only just wizards, but <laughs> literally the same prestige class. You did have different specializations. That is true. That is a very different level of wizard, to be fair. Uh, still. Like, you could do three fighters and still make them suitably Totally. Diverse. You could have an entirely shield-based fighter, a two-handed damage dealer, and then a ranged character. You could build three of any character class very differently. I sure. think you I, – I don't even think they have to be built differently to have fun. You, oh, sure. You could do – you could do an entire party. Well, okay, maybe not an entire Three party. Druids, that might get a little one with weird. A horse, one with a bear, one with a lion. No, 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 no. I, I, I was like, even. Oh my! <laughs> I was even going to go if you pick the same archetype. Like, let's say for Pathfinder, you do three fighters and you do three two-weapon fighters. Mm. There are teamwork feats and advantages and things you can do to make that synergize that you don't have to be stupidly diverse. Sure. I mean, you, you can, you can work together as a team. I God worry. forbid. I about the defense some sides. issues with traps. Well, I was also thinking with will saves, but sure. I'm not saying there's not problems. I'm saying that <laughs> I'm saying that regardless of what you choose to do, you're going to end up facing issues but if you do it collaboratively, teamwork tends to overcome that better than sure. a particular character yeah. build. D&D is a team sport. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, your, your fundamental argument, I think, I think we all agree with that there's only problematic players. And really, that can be handled in an out-of-character context, particularly between the GM and that problematic player. Let's, let's address the issues long before you get there. If a character wants to build, not to put this too close to home, the lawful evil <laughs> character in a good-aligned game, that can be discussed in advance and make sure that that's in, in done in a way that is isn't stepping on too many toes or taking the, the game too far off of what the GM has intended. Yeah, for sure. I, I think for me this year, what has been really interesting and, and probably what I've, I have both enjoyed the most and despised the most. Oh boy. Is, is uh, learning how to play with a much larger table mm. because this is something I never 
I never thought we would have a group of seven players. I have to in give you kudos. I mean, coming out of my Tolis game with seven players, and we talked all about how oh, the different ways to do it. But at the end of the day, we agreed it's important to spend time with our friends and yeah. everyone be at the table. I haven't had a chance to tell you, Rob. I've been very impressed with how you've really handled that, and I feel like it allows us, even when some people aren't able to come to the session, to continue to play. And still move the story forward. And I don't feel like much has gotten left behind. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the biggest benefits that I've liked about it. One of my favorite parts about it is that we haven't really had weeks where we can't keep playing, Mm -hmm. which is great. Like if a few people can't show up, our group's big enough that the story can still keep going and we can still move forward. And I, I really like that part of it. There's been a few things we've done that have made that work in particularly really, really well. You have um, your lovely wife is a GM assistant writing notes. That has been very helpful. That allows you to focus your attention on moving the story forward well, yep. without forgetting all the details and the NPCs and the different things that go on. But also the players have been involved in keeping notes there too. Yeah, and- that has helped. And I think another something I would suggest to the the DMs of the world out there, if you do have a big group, something that I've tried to do whenever the party splits is to deal with those splits in skill challenges Instead of long roleplay sessions, mm. I think it moves mm-hmm. those times that the party's not together along a little bit faster, and it makes it a little bit more entertaining for everybody else who's not involved to sort of participate by watching kind of a show, you know? So I, I would suggest that. It's from 4th Edition. If you haven't played with skill challenges, check them out. We incorporated them into basically all of our games because they are very useful tools. I, I wasn't the largest fan of fourth edition, but there were some very interesting, there were a couple of pieces that I think were absolutely genius and skill challenges are probably at the top of that list. Mm -hmm. I agree. They're probably my favorite thing from fourth edition. And like I said, even when we've worked backwards and played in 3.5 or in Pathfinder first edition, we tend to keep skill challenges around just because they are such a useful tool for making silly little things like sneaking, you know, through the alleys or chase scenes much more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. We've yeah. used it for a lot of different things. And in, in the very recent session, we used it when we're trying to traverse a difficult mountain terrain, trying to get a wagon through this, and, you know, all the issues on this this mountain trail with all the mudslides and mm-hmm. stuff. And, and getting through that, that could be a very tedious role play. But you came up with a way to do that that allowed us to move through that in just a few minutes mm-hmm. and move on to the next piece of the story, which was still very engaging. And it actually, I think we failed that skill challenge. You did. Which yeah. made it actually kind of fun to slide down the hill with the wagon and have to try to slide figure out. Slide down the hill? Well. Slip off a <laughs> Off okay. the <laughs> That's a matter of degree. But no one died. Just, okay. the, just okay. the horses. There's not enough chatter here. We need to add a little uh, yeah. bit of context just for anybody who's listening who isn't familiar with the idea. This is essentially a proxy for combat in like a non-aggressive way. So each person goes around the table naming a skill and trying to make a DC set by what they're suggesting. Like I will use ride to try to navigate these horses around a tight mountain path um, would be like a reasonable use of the skill. If it's not applicable, this has a relatively higher DC. And the, this basically allows you to bring some of the like improv elements of what do you do in a situation mm-hmm. back into a non-combat scenario. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I really like about it, too, where it's everything's not hindering on a single check. So it's like make or break it. We can have scenarios like this mudslide that we were trying to traverse where the party genuinely failed the check and there were consequences, yet the story still gets to move forward. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the really beautiful things about the skill challenges. All right, Nate, brings us back to you again. 
<laughs> Nate doesn't enjoy moments. He enjoys the whole game. Devours them. <laughs> that is how I tend to consume most of my media. No, I, I think my favorite moment actually was was very recently. In fact, I, I think maybe it was just last week. After that mudslide uh, down the hill, we discovered a cave and inside the cave was a dragon who uh, we fought and ended up being a little bit more intelligent, surrendered to us, actually. And that was a little bit of a challenge in terms of what to do with the dragon of surrenders. But in actually third edition, uh, in the book of exalted deeds, there's actually rules for how to convert evil. Mm -hmm. And I happen to actually really love those rules. And in the game, I'm playing a paladin. So we used those rules and and sort of role played out. What does it look like to convert a dragon? And and I had a great deal of fun with that, helping the dragon atone for some of its past misdeeds and learning how to fit into a society in a much more healthy sort of way. And I I had a great deal of fun uh, with that role play. That was a really fun session. I really enjoyed uh, the scene where the dragon and Nate's paladin went to the farmer whose sheep the dragon had been feasting on for many years and had to negotiate recompense to the farmer and a contract going forward for how the farmer would be paid for his eaten sheep. <laughs> That's a great deal of fun. Yeah, it really was. Very good times. Um, merchant paladin, I might add. He is. He is. He's <laughs> like a merchant paladin. <laughs> you definitely handled that according to the way he would have handled it. Yeah, okay, absolutely. I, 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 they're not all the characters I play, but I do like playing pro-social characters. I, I think it can be um, – it, it, it lends itself to the group experience. Ironically, when I think of all the characters you've ever played, a very anti-social character is the one that actually comes directly to mind. But that's neither here nor there. I have played several of them over the years. <laughs> there's no doubt. <laughs> okay, guys. Let's move on to Tricks of the Trade. End of season one. And – I thought the best tricks of the trade to give to you, my listeners, would be each of our number one piece of advice to either players or GMs to create better games and use these pieces of advice over the next couple of months as we are on break between seasons. But also reach out, talk to us, anything you love about this, let us know. Any other ideas you have, let us know. I am going to be posting some more information and more bonus episodes that will pop up in between now and then. And comments from the listeners that will be on Instagram and things like that. So if you have ideas of your own, send them our way and I'm going to get them out there. I want to in include you all in this conversation. So who would like to get started? Honestly, if there's going to be a, a, a break, I think one of the best things the listeners can do is go back and listen to the earlier episodes they may have missed <laughs> yeah. or maybe the ones that they really liked. I actually have some – well, that is obviously something that you should definitely do. I just want to touch on something we've talked about a lot, and that is that at the end of the day, this is a collaborative game. Yep. You have a group of people that are getting together that are devoting a large amount of time for a game that everybody needs to get something meaningful out of the experience. And I think that really comes back to communication. Mm -hmm. And you can't over-communicate. I mean, both before before, during, and after game, I think keeping those lines of communication open, both between the players at the table, between the GM and all the players, to make sure everyone's getting out of the experience something 
close to what they're putting in. So it makes it worthwhile. There's nothing, nothing worse than playing a game for several months and then it devolving into nothing because mm-hmm. certain people aren't enjoying it. They want to move on to different things because they're feeling like they're, they're not being listened to. They don't have a real place at the table. And that can easily be avoided just with good communication between everybody and just to be open to those different thought processes. And everybody likes to play the game differently. I mean, Joe, you and I look at this from a very different perspective, usually about what we enjoy out of the game. And that's totally fine and totally fair, but it's important that both of us get what we want out of the game and out of the experience. And I think most GMs are more than happy and more than able to do that if they know that's what we're looking for. Very good advice, Dustin. Asking for what you like. I like it. I think that uh, the big tip that I'd like to give actually addresses character creation because I I know a lot of people who like to play a very high level of game, present company included. He's talking about me and me (laughs) and me. (laughs) Right. Uh, And so I would just uh, really like to kind of encourage the thought of after you've kind of like settled in on your general character concept, like a dispeller wizard or something uh, or a paladin who's not a paladin, for example, um, settling in on how to uh, support the rest of the team as an immediate second priority, whether that's going to be some way of buffing skills, having healing and reserve, finding ways of boosting their defense or buffs so you can not just hold your own, but also tag along on their missions and be welcome, I think is a, a really important part of character creation. Like before you ever sit down to roll dice, because really this is a team game and however you can contribute to helping everybody else achieve their goals mm-hmm. is going to turn you into a, uh, a much more welcome player. Yeah, I very much agree with that point. I think my recommendation would be to look outside of your normal story consumption, I guess. If you tend to focus in on sort of the same style of storytelling, whatever format that might take, look outside of that. Go go find, go experience a different medium. If you read a lot, go watch a movie or see a play. Go listen to a podcast. Do do something do something new and you will probably find some form of that storytelling that resonates with you and you can bring that back to the gaming table with you whether it's some new idea in terms in terms of a storyline some new idea to sort of incorporate as a method of storytelling at the table the further outside of yourself you look there's a wealth of sort of opportunity and possibility out there yeah it's a very good point too Nate and and to that point I think my DMing style lends a lot to what you're talking about right now. At any given time, saved on the note tab in my phone, I have a hundred or more different quotes or sayings or things that I heard from different media that I want to put in my game. It's either like, oh, this scene from this story was really cool or literally a quote that a character said. And I mean, I've got a dozen of them that came from Yellowstone, which I was recently watching of just really cool things that like a villain could say or (laughs) a a good person trying to motivate, you know, a, a clamoring party would be able to say. And I just sort of keep those things at hand as as extra references for for building a more believable more immersive world no wonder your npcs are so memorable yeah <laughs> thank you <laughs> i and and to my point i'm going to go ahead and say what's worked really well in this game is is the advice that i'm going to give going forward and i know sometimes it can kind of come off a little bit ridiculous but just kind of let go be willing to to be silly as a dm If you give your players the idea that it's okay to be a little bit ridiculous and have a little bit more fun 
than just being serious. Boy, we've had a lot of laughs in this most recent campaign. I, honestly, I think we've been laughing around the table over ridiculous NPCs or stupid shop names or just like <laughs> stuff that, that have been a little more off the wall that I'm used to doing. But I think it's come off really well, especially for a large group, is is it kind of brings everybody back into the center when we're able to all laugh together. So I would say just be silly, have fun, and just enjoy yourself. Enjoy being free and being ridiculous a little bit more than you might be comfortable with. Oh, yeah. And I, I got to say, by the way, Dispel and Datspell is pure gold for a magic <laughs> shop name. Thank oh you. My God. Run by Miss Giggle Willow. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Uh, that's and that's exactly right like i'm i'm playing a little more punny i'm playing a little more ridiculous than i normally play because i i do like i tend to like pretty serious stories but we're all there to have fun so i've just been trying to to let loose and have a little bit more fun and i think it's worked well especially with this group size even dramas have need for comic relief occasionally, and it's Absolutely. nice to bring a little levity into the games, especially with more serious. The story you're telling has a lot of seriousness to it, so I've definitely enjoyed those moments of, she's named what? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Any final thoughts before we go, gentlemen? The final the final sign-off for season one? That's been great. I mean, I've enjoyed uh, both participating and listening every week to the various episodes. I've enjoyed not only hearing perspectives from a lot of the people we game with on a regular basis, but also many of the guests you brought on have shared unique perspectives and uh, diverse interests. And I've really enjoyed that aspect of the show as well. So I'm, uh, I'm very excited to see where things go into season two. You know, the more time we spend doing episodes like this and, uh, watching my wife get progressively more into stuff like critical role and other uh, notable gaming troops leaves me with this kind of like quiet hope that we could like find ourselves all around a table with mics ready to be like recorded and uh, maybe not televised, but podcasted. I don't know. Uh -huh. It seems charming. You know, there has been contemplations of, of such uh -huh. steps. Um, <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know if I'm ready to take the plunge yet. But the more I also listen to these kind of podcasts and the more that I get comfortable with this format, it's definitely it's definitely been a topic rattling around in my brain. Well, that that means cyclithids. If that's something you want, please send them an email. Yep, that's that's true. I mean, if you're looking for an actual play from our group, if you guys bug me enough, it probably will happen. You know, I mean, hypothetically, a one shot would be a lot easier to manage than like a whole campaign. That is true. Just we could we could throw standpoint. some one shots out there and a few hours of gaming and, and you could get a better grasp on the idea of the way that we play. Uh, I'm not sure what final thought to leave you with other than have fun gaming. <laughs> and honestly, that's it. Have fun gaming. And last but not least, before signing off for this final time in season one, I do want to remind you, my cyclothids, that you can get a hold of me by emailing me at Dungeons Dragon Psychology. That's all one word at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, and you can go to the website DungeonsDragonPsychology.com and you can communicate with me there. Very last thing. I do have a very special guest announcement that I'm super excited about. In two weeks, I'm going to be recording with Greg Tito and Shelly Manzanoble, the hosts of the official D&D podcast, Dragon Talk. 
They're going to be on the show talking about their new book, Welcome to Dragon Talk, inspiring conversations about Dungeons and Dragons and the people who love to play it, which is releasing in early December. Very excited about this, so please tune in early next month as this bonus episode featuring two of the most recognizable names in the D&D gaming industry are on my show. And just a huge thank you to all of my cyclothids who have started listening to the show, who have shared it with their friends. Please keep getting the word out there. I'm very excited for season two. We're going to have a lot of changes and some great new guests coming on, and you'll be seeing those announcements in my Instagram and Twitter feeds over the next few months. And as always, until next time, we'll see you next session.